Good evening and welcome to SPHERE. Uh, I'm Alan Carey, the Director of SPHERE Education Initiatives here at the Cato Institute. It's my pleasure to welcome you all here tonight. Uh, I'm really excited about the conversation that we've got lined up for you. A tremendous panel of speakers and some really exciting workshops. Uh, as a quick reminder, SPHERE exists as a program from the Cato Institute as a means of really helping people better understand Hold on, I might be muted. Can you guys hear me? Yes? Okay, sorry. There was some quick confusion on that point. Uh, so Sphere, as a program, it exists in large part as a mechanism for bringing together educators to talk about critical issues to society like policy and challenges facing our students in the world today as a means of bringing together a multiplicity of perspectives to think about these challenges and how we move forward. And tonight, is no different in that vein. I'm excited that we'll be bringing together a conversation for you on the topic of policing and the constitution. As you all know, the Bill of Rights Day is coming up in just a week and we've got an exciting conversation lined up for you guys tonight. So uh, two quick notes of advance for you before we jump right into the program itself. First note for our educators here, I do ask that if you haven't yet already, please make sure that your name in the chat is listed as your full name. We'll use that as we check against registration records to be able to offer professional development certificates for individuals afterwards. If you've not renamed yourself before, just hover over your name in the participants box and you can click on the three dots, it'll say more and new names and option there, but we use that as a means of being able to offer those certificates afterward. The second thing that I would note in the spirit of civil discourse and thoughtful engagement, we ask that all of you keep the conversation civil. Please, by all means, add lots of comments and chats and feel free to disagree and push the envelope and give hard questions, particularly for our panelists. Don't give any of those for me, I can't handle them, but our panelists, they would love all of your hard questions. Throw them in the chat box, we'll get them tonight. Second thing, real quick, to walk through the overall uh, structure of the conversation tonight. Here in just a second, I'll do a quick introduction of our guests, then we'll dig into a conversation uh, with our panelists for about 30 to 35 minutes. And we'll get an opportunity to hear from uh, Emma Humphreys and Rachel Davison Humphreys uh, talking about resources that educators can use and bring back to their classrooms. And then finally, we're gonna end with a Q&A section. So by all means, add those comments to the chat box as as you can, we'll pull from those in the Q&A moderated section later tonight. Let me then get right to introducing our panelists tonight. First, I want to introduce Clark Neely, who is the Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. His areas of interest include constitutional law, over-criminalization, coercive plea bargaining, police accountability, and gun rights. Before joining Cato in 2017, uh, Clark was a senior attorney and constitutional litigator at the Institute for Justice and director of the Institute Center for Judicial Engagement. He's an adjunct professor at George Mason's Antonin Scalia School of Law, where he teaches constitutional litigation and public interest law. I'm also pleased to be joined tonight by Chief J. Scott Thompson, who is Holtec's Executive Director of Global Security. Chief Thompson has had a distinguished career of public service with more than 27 years of law enforcement experience, most recently serving for 11 years as the Chief of Police of the Camden County Police Department, where he saw a police department of more than 600 sworn and civilian employees. In 2013, Mr. Thompson pioneered an innovative strategy that significantly transformed the public safety profile of the city of Camden, New Jersey. The city was perennially labeled as the nation's most dangerous city. He created a new police department that was responsible for achieving unprecedented reductions in crime, culminating in a 50-year low in 2018. Uh, to achieve this, Mr. Thompson developed unique strategies 
harness technologies and bolster an organizational culture that led to the President of the United States in 2015, recognizing his department as a model for 21st century policing. Very excited to have Chief Thompson with us tonight. Our third panelist tonight is no stranger to Sphere and no stranger to most of you, and that's Curry Sautner. Dr. Sautner is the Chief Learning Officer at the National Constitution Center. In her current role, she oversees all aspects of the public's on-site experience and leads the center's national education efforts. Through various platforms, Sautner delivers the development and distribution of programs and online offerings that make the center the nation's leading constitutional education resource. Curry also leads the development of interactive for students, teachers, and the public, theatrical productions, educational videos, and standards-based classroom materials available on-site and online. It's truly a really impressive work that all of our panelists bring with them tonight. Thank you all so much for joining me. To begin the conversation, I wanted to turn over to Chief Thompson. Uh, Chief Thompson, in your experience as a law enforcement professional, you've seen tremendous changes in the way that policing has occurred and the way that policing engages with the community. I wonder if you might begin by sharing with us a little bit about your experience in Camden, New Jersey, and what you learned over the years. Yeah. Well, thank you for, uh, for inviting me to be a part of this tonight. It's an honor to, to be able to participate and, and share experiences. Um, just to give a little bit of context uh, for uh, background, to provide context, I should say, you know, it, that which was uh, done in Camden, uh, Camden in cities of 50,000 or more is the poorest in the country with a per capita income of less than $15,000 a year. It's 96% minority, uh, has, the, has some of the most extreme uh, societal challenges. It, it's a perfect storm of social inequities. Um, and the, the progress that we're able to make uh, was, was reversing the, uh, the relationships that had existed for decades in which, to be quite frank with you, the community had very, very high levels of mistrust and hatred and uh, what you had described as one of the nation's most dangerous cities. Uh, and we were able to, to uh, reverse that and make progress. Not success, but progress. Absolutely, thank you so much, Chief Thompson. Clark, I, I wonder if you might uh, set the stage for us. So in addition to the, the elements that Chief Thompson already shared, tell us a little bit more about the overall context of policing in the Constitution right now, uh, particularly in this age of what seems like a very polarized perspectives on policing in America. Well, it certainly is polarized and um, no one who uh, has been observing what's been going on in this country can fail to notice that for at least the past seven or eight months, um, a tremendous amount of frustration and even anger has been spilling out into the streets, particularly in many of our big cities, um, over the issue of policing. And um, it's a very difficult question, right? Because you see, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement, you see people uh, attacking the police as an institution. Um, but then on the other side, you see people who say, you know what, this is all overblown, this is exaggerated. There's really not um, uh, you know, such a fundamental problem here. And the question becomes, well, who's right? And the answer I think is, well, they're both right. Uh, about some things, but not about everything. There are serious problems with policing in this country. Not all departments, some are better than others, but in, certainly in some departments, there are serious problems. Um, I think there's a deeper problem though, and that is this. Police um, out in the streets are where people have their point of personal contact with 
the American criminal justice system. And if the system itself is not working properly, which I don't believe it is, in fact, I've written a blog post in which I argue that our criminal justice system is fundamentally rotten, then when you come into contact with the people who are the point people for that criminal justice system, they are going to bear the brunt of your frustration. And perhaps some of that frustration, and I think probably uh, in fact, that much of that frustration is better directed towards other elements within the criminal justice system. And so I think police get blamed for a lot of the failings in our system that are not necessarily their fault or their responsibility, but there is still much that police have to own up to and do differently than the way they have been doing it. Thank you so much, Clark. Chief Johnson, I, I wonder if you might respond to that. Uh, how has that looked in Camden, in your experience? What were what were some of the relationships between police and the community uh, while you were there, and how did it change over the time you were uh, as chief of Camden? Yeah, when when I first started in the organization almost thirty years ago, uh, there were extremely high levels of mistrust. I mean, most of of the problems that had existed, and actually, what, what kind of created a lot of the problems for, for the city itself were race riots that had occurred in the late 60s and early 70s that were, they were, they were created by police violence. Um, and the, the actions of police, we, we had always taken a, an approach where we would try to arrest our way um, through problems. Uh, we, we kept taking this, this like failed. Uh, policy approach to, um, you know, trying to over leverage enforcement and uh, not really ever getting to preconditions or looking to the root cause issues or, or trying to develop uh, relationships with the neighborhoods. And what we found was that particularly in extremely challenged and destabilized neighborhoods, when we relied upon traditional tactics and strategies, we actually made things worse. And it, it, we weren't adding true value. Uh, and some of the best examples I could give you is that we would have very high levels of disorder in some neighborhoods. We'd have high levels of crime, levels that were equivalent to third world countries. And we would routinely go into them almost like an occupying force. We would militarize neighborhoods. We would leverage enforcement. And you know we were literally a, a bunch of hammers and everything looked like a nail. And that was our approach to it. The tactics that we used sometimes, oftentimes, would give us the instantaneous reduction in the activity that we were trying to, to reduce, but we were doing a significant amount of harm all the while. We were, we were uh, engaging in activities that was um, doing more fostering of, of mistrust against us. And whatever success we had was not sustainable because the moment we left, the condition would go right back to what it was. We weren't addressing what was causing the issues. And it's, you know, what's the definition of insanity, Alan? It's doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So it wasn't really until we, we did a fundamental shift in our identity as going to be more of guardians than it was warriors. We were not going to continue to try to, to, uh, make arbitrary and capricious decisions on what was best for the people within the neighborhood. And that if we did have to rely upon enforcement, well, then we were going to be informed by the people so that we were enforcing the law with them and not enforcing the law on them. 
Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Curry, I wanted to bring you into the conversation. I know as a, a longtime educator and working at the National Constitution Center, Bill of Rights Day and the Constitution is something that's particularly important to you and to all of us here. Uh, I wonder if you might share a little bit of context around as we start to think about some of these major issues with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights in particular, which are some of the ones that are most relevant to this conversation around policing and how can we start to think about them in this context? It, that's a great Pandora's box of we can get into this for hours and hours. Um, I, it's so much of what Chief Thompson says, it, so much it falls back on this understanding that we have to understand what the rules are, what the laws are, they have to be transparent. But what you hear in everything he says about the community is you have to listen to each other. You have to have dialogue with each other. And so you can understand other people's perspectives because you know everybody comes with their own sense of experiences, their own experiences from community, from their friends, from their family. If you're not talking to each other and getting at the root of what we understand as what justice and fairness is or should be, and on the same page and aligned around that, then we can't have accomplish anything. So I think when we look back of on Bill of Rights Day, we think about Bill of Rights as, you know, these are our fundamental freedoms. The government cannot do that to me. I mean, that's so much of how many so many people see the police in places like Philadelphia and Camden. It's not just the first time you interact with the justice system, it's the first time you probably interact with the government other than the post office. But who goes there anymore? We just, you know, drop it off or, you know, Venmo it. So the, all these things really matter in this understanding of understanding these systems that we have in place, what's working and what's not working in those systems, and then having civil dialogue around it. So what you started off with is how do we have dialogue around it? So we can not just tell people what we think, but hear where they're coming from and the lens that they have on it. So that to me is rights, fairness, and listening. Absolutely. Clark, I wonder if you might expand on that, right? So I know you've done an extensive amount of work, particularly around issues of police reform and constitutional issues related to that, uh, whether that's issues like qualified immunity or other pieces. What, what would you point to our educators and say, these are some of the most critical components of the Constitution to understand the, the contemporary situation in policing and constitutionality? Well, I agree with Curry. It's a, it's a huge issue, but let's see if we can break it down a little bit. Um, I mentioned earlier that I believe that our, our criminal justice system is unfortunately fundamentally rotten. I have three points in mind when I say that. The first is that um, doing violence to a citizen and putting them in a cage is a really big deal, but our judiciary has treated it as not a big deal at all. And in fact, something the government can do simply on a whim. And I'll give you an illustration in just a moment. Second, our constitution provides a very a robust and protective set of procedures before the government can convict you of a crime and put you in prison. Police and, and prosecutors and judges um, have managed to hack those constitutional procedures so that um, in this day and age, actually the number one protection of people's liberty, which is a jury trial before the government can put you in prison, um, jury trials are actually almost non-existent on American soil because prosecutors have become so proficient at coercing people into pleading guilty and waiving their constitutional right to a trial uh, that those procedural protections are almost completely stripped away. And third and finally, when you as the government, when we, the people, 
working through our government, equips certain people with extraordinary power and discretion, as we do police officers. It is extremely important that we get the right amount of accountability, that we hold them to a high level of accountability. And unfortunately, we don't. Um, the centerpiece of our low accountability system for police is the qualified immunity doctrine that makes it very difficult to sue police officers for civil rights violations. We can talk about that more in a moment. Here's the concrete illustration I wanted to give you about my first point, which is that we allow the government to do violence to people on a whim. Um, up until uh, last year, Shreveport, Louisiana had a law on the books that made it illegal to wear saggy pants. I assume most of you have seen people wearing saggy pants and you understand that this is at least in part a cultural issue. Well, they arrested over 700 people for violating this law in Shreveport and it was only in June of last year when a police officer killed a 31 year old African American man while trying to arrest him for wearing saggy pants that the city of Shreveport, Louisiana finally repealed this law. That's an example of the government enforcing laws and requiring police officers to enforce morally indefensible laws. And I should add constitutionally indefensible laws as well. Unfortunately, our judiciary has taken the position that it's not really a big deal to take away somebody's physical freedom and put them in a cage and that the government can do so essentially on a whim. And that really is the rotten apple in my judgment at the heart of the, of the fundamental pathology of our criminal justice system. Chief Thompson, when we were talking previously and in, in reading some of the, the work that you've put out, one of the things that I think was fascinating about the changes that you implemented in Camden was moving away from uh, as strict of enforcement of low-level offenses, so some of these more minor, minor infractions that are out there, and instead working on some of the elements of more generally referred to as community policing and building relationships up in the community. I wonder, wonder if you might talk a little bit more about that experience when you were, we were trying to better understand how to change the way that the police force interacted with the community. What were some of the things that you took into mind and then how did that play out as you implemented those changes in the community? Yeah, I, I just, I wanted to just to add uh, a couple of points to what Clark had just said, uh, which is, you know, um, it, it the police are the most ubiquitous form of government. We're particularly in really challenged neighborhoods. We are the face of government. We are what are, you know, we are the, the, the number one call is goes to the police, right? We are the agency of first resort for everything. Um, and the criminal justice system as a whole, you know, it's, it's really hard to refute the fact that we do have a system that is better to be guilty and rich than innocent and poor. And when society and government delegates all of the undesirable things down to the police, such as addiction, homelessness, you know, mental illness, and the only tools that you give police are a pair of handcuffs, a ticket book, and a pistol, and then we wonder why this movie keeps having a bad ending. Um, so, I, and I think that's just some, some, some uh, substance to provide as an example for what Clark is, is just mentioned, where how that is how we end up with this overpopulation of certain people in a place where it, it, it doesn't make the situation any better. In fact, many would say it makes it worse. And, um, and a lot of that leads to the sense of injustice. Uh, and then we see what comes thereafter. When we made our fundamental shift, we, we, we changed our identity from warriors to guardians. We, we look to work more with the community to address what were the issues that were negatively defined in their lives. And, to, and as Curry said in the beginning, what we found was that 
the people in the most challenged communities, the people that, that to be quite frank, that hated us the most, and we gave them some pretty good reasons over the years to feel that way, were also the people that called us the most. They were the people that relied upon us. You know, the, in, in a city of, of, of 70,000 in Camden, we have more than 10,000 calls for service a year of acts of domestic violence inside households. So, I mean, when you start to break that down into, the, into demographics in a city that's 96% minority, the overwhelming majority of people that were calling us and asking us for help were, were minority women. So the issue wasn't that they wanted us to not be there. The issue was that they just wanted us to behave differently. And once we made that fundamental shift and it came through communication, it came through us listening instead of talking, us changing our internal metrics for how we would judge the performance of an officer and the commander in their areas of responsibility. We stopped measuring outputs, tickets, arrests, seizures, and started to measure outcomes. Were people sitting on their front steps? Were little kids riding their bikes in front of their homes? Oftentimes we took non-traditional approaches to achieve this. In, in neighborhoods that people had abandoned public space because a very, very small percentage of the population acted with a sense of impunity and forced everybody in their homes, we would do things like bring in ice cream trucks and give out free ice cream. And the whole idea of that, there was a strategy to that. It wasn't just to capture the hearts and minds and, 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 and make people feel good. It was, we wanted them to reclaim the area that they were abandoning. And then we would hit tipping points in public safety. We'd have far more good people on streets than the ne'er-do-wellers. And so it was, it, was the, it was taking that complete philosophical shift to how to address crime. Now, that's not to say that we got soft on crime. We put a laser-like focus on that very, very small fraction of society for which we build prisons and, and need to be in there. And now, but because of our policing tactics, we were far more informed by the community on who those folks were. And those folks wanted us to put the full weight of law enforcement on them. And that's what we did. And by doing that, we reduced murders by 70% in the city. We, we, we dropped out of being labeled as the nation's most dangerous city. We were able to have a 50 year low in crime and at the same time have higher levels of, of confidence and trust and actually make less arrests. I think that's a, a fascinating and compelling story. Uh, thinking about some of the pieces that go into changing the way these things happen, Curry, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit more about one of the, the fascinating programs from the National Constitution Center. Uh, I'm always going to get the name wrong, but I believe it's Policing in a More Perfect Union, if that's the name of it, but it's part of a broader initiative that the center is about. I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about that program. What is it? Where did it come from? And, and what's so interesting about the way that it approaches the world? Um, yeah, you can never forget it if you think kind of what we're all striving to do every day, you know, more perfect, keep going, head down. Um, so we started in 2015 with the Philadelphia Police Department, and the idea was we need to understand where communities think about police, but we also need to understand, make sure police understand the history of America and policing. And that's a, it's a really hard thing to grapple with is your identity as a police officer is your, not your identity as Chief Thompson. It's your identity of the badge, it's the identity of the uniform, 
and the hundreds of years of what that uniform had stood for both right and wrong. And so what we did was we experimented with this in Philadelphia and what we thought was essential, the goal was to begin with police recruits and train them on the meaning of justice and fairness in society through the constitution and through the history. But we thought, you know, we're training new recruits to go out there in Philadelphia and to talk to the community members. Every other part of your life, you practice. You practice riding a bike, you practice driving a car, you practice all these things. And I thought, this is insane. We're gonna send a bunch of young people out there uh, being recruits and never have them talk to or practice with the hardest group of the community, high schoolers. Like that's hard. And every teacher in here knows that it's not an easy demographic to talk to ever, especially on Zoom. But it is really difficult. And our kids in Philadelphia were really, really upset with what was going on across the country with policing. So it was this perfect moment to ask kids what they thought, to ask young recruits for the police what they thought, talk to them about American history, and then bring them together in open civil dialogue where we did a couple things different. We shifted the power dynamic. So we put the kids in charge. We put 15-year-olds in charge. But with all the knowledge and all the skills of a brilliant moderator, and the beauty of 15-year-olds is they're fearless. So they're like, we're in, we're on it. We very quickly experimented with Camden police officers, and that was in-service officers, which was a totally different experiment. And what we were able to do with Chief Thompson's work and the Camden, Prom Camden Promise Academy is work with Camden students to be able to bring them all to the center and have a dialogue around policing after they spent four hours looking at the history of policing, the history of rights, the reconstruction amendments, the black codes, deep diving deep into it, talking peer to peer first, police officer to police officer about what justice and fairness meant to each other as like-minded or what they thought would be like-minded conversations and then bringing students in to, to moderate those conversations and shift the dynamic. It's really unbelievable what happened, but it really is about giving people opportunities in places that are neutral and that are focused about listening to each other and changing perspectives on everybody. Sounds like a fascinating program. Uh, Chief Thompson, I'd love to hear your experience in that. As from the, the being on the other side of the table and, and working with so many members of your department and participating in that. And I know there's a, a similar program that you and I believe Kark are both involved with with NYU as well. Tell me a little bit about how that went. How was it and how did that impact the way that it, uh, it shaped new officers coming out of the force? Yeah, no, it, it was, and Curry and her team were, were just amazing, uh, because really it, it's one of the toughest segments of society for, for police to, to really communicate in a meaningful way uh, in, 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 uh, with, with, with the youth, um, you know, particularly going into schools, in, that has limited effectiveness. That's not an environment that in which people feel as free. It's still very authoritarian. It's governmental. You know, a student's not going to feel, or a young person's not going to feel as as open to say and express their feelings. Oftentimes, and you know, and there's this dynamic that exists today, uh, and it's been existing for for several years now, where it's a binary option: either you know, uh, you're all cops are bad, and or all cops feel as though they're being vilified, and the society hates them. And you know, you can be pro police reform without being anti-police. And oftentimes it's, it's so difficult to have that conversation 
because of some legitimate feelings that, that exist. So when you can have these environments that are either created for you with the assistance of the Courier team, or we would work to create in a more organic environment, not in a police station, not in a community center, but more on a, a humanistic person-to-person perspective, um, this is where you start to get your, 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 the most ground that's going to be gained. You know, there's one thing that I, I have learned through all these uh, endeavors is that nothing builds trust like human contact. And it's very hard to hate up close. And we knew that in what we were being armed with, with, with the information from the people that would talk to us, from the students. And, and we're, I mean, we were listening firsthand to what teenagers really thought of us, what teenagers really thought of policing. And in, so, in a way in which the police officers could, would not be so defensive. They understood that this was an environment. And look, it's much better that we're hearing that there than in a potentially confrontational situation out on a street corner so that the emotion can be down and that everybody can process that in a way and respect it. It also gave the police officers the ability to communicate what they were thinking in certain situations to, to, the, to, to the teenagers uh, and to the students. And I, you know, I, I don't think that, that they ever looked at many police officers, and this goes for society in general, as human beings, unless you, you, know, unless you have one that's related to you or you're interacting with the police officer on a regular basis. Many people just look at the, the, as the, uh, the police officer as the badge, the gun, and the patch that's on their arm. They're part of that monolithic cold organization. So the key is to, is to have those interactions in a way in which people can express themselves. Um, and I have found that, you know, not only was this extremely important for building relationships, because if the only time that police are engaging with members of the public are either in moments of enforcement or moments of crisis, that becomes the lens through which the community defines the police. And that means we always represent something negative. And I'll, and I'll submit to you that probably even more damaging, that becomes the lens through which the police define the community. And that leads to very high levels of cynicism. And that leads to dehumanization. And that's where you start to find where the real, the real sticking point is with communities of feeling dehumanized and being treated with a lack of respect and dignity. So when we could pierce that in, in a way that gave us the ability for, for both sides to walk away with better informed and more knowledgeable of each other's challenges, goals, dreams, peop, as people look at the learning as people, this is where real movement started to occur. And if you're not having that type of connection, you know, unfortunately, it, the, the, the paper exercises. So that human contact face-to-face, being in each other's presence, hearing each other's uh, voices, looking in each other's eyes, that was absolutely invaluable. Absolutely. So 
so many great questions coming in and I'm, I wanna make sure that we get to them, especially into the Q&A. So Clark, there's, a, there's definitely gonna be an opportunity to talk about qualified immunity in there. We've got a lot of interesting questions there and Chief Thompson, I think we'll wanna follow up. There are many great questions about uh, how you approach this, particularly with uh, juvenile communities. But for the last question in this section, I wanted to turn it back over to Curry. So much of the focus of these events is particularly put upon this idea of, let's talk about these important ideas, but most importantly, let's help our educators be able to find the ways to connect that back to the classroom. So I wanted to turn it over to you with the general question of, given the conversation tonight and the resources that the National Constitution Center has available, what advice do you have for teachers? How can they start to engage in this conversation more? What are tools at their disposal to help them push this forward in their classrooms? So uh, our team is in the in the group, so that's awesome. So Madison and David Olson. David Olson is a teacher um, in Wisconsin that actually does this in his classroom as well. So it, I would suggest number one, begin with having your kids do civil discourse and dialogue with each other. This is what we did at Camden Promise Academy at Constitution High School, and you know take on roles of not just picking apart the police but defending the police and really understanding what's going on in their policy work. I think that's huge, but it's really the practice of civil discourse. Because if you're asking students to lead these conversations in the future, you need to give them the ability to play in those conversations first. Um, number two, dive into things like Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment, look at the 14th Amendment, look at reconstruction in America. All these things will get at the underlying issues and questions and concerns and problems with the justice system with things like stop and frisk, which we talk about all the time in Philadelphia, you'll look at Terry v. Ohio. So you can dive in the constitutional questions. So when the students do get to a policy questions, they have the framework for those dialogues. And the third thing that I would say is hugely important and essential is you have to have a relationship with a police community, your police in your community. The, the teachers need to talk to the police officers. If we didn't have Chief Ramsey and Chief Thompson, we would, have, we would have crashed and burned this. We would have not been successful. We need to be able to work together and have common goals and common understanding. And then be able to do what I think is hugely important is what Tisha Thompson says, maybe don't go to the school. Don't go to the police department. You wanna bring people outside of their bubble so the relationship boundaries change. And that's what's great about museums, about libraries, about public settings. It is that it's nobody's space and it's all of our spaces. And we think so much that the work has to go into the content, that the work has to go into the, the opening of minds. But remember environment plays a huge part of that. When those kids came to the Constitution Center to lead those dialogues, that was their turf, that was their home. So they felt safe and secure. When the police came in, they felt like they trusted us as an organization so what we were gonna tell them was not gonna be cited in one way or the other. And that they brought, we brought in students that were there to listen. So it became that Switzerland, that neutral ground, that common place we could come to together. Look for those partners in police and look for those partners in your community so you can get outside of your box. And this is a, this is a national dialogue. So just don't do it in one space because kids will hold it only there. And it'll turn into somebody lecturing somebody about what they did right or wrong. 
Well, thank you all to all of our panelists. It was a fantastic conversation so far. What I wanted to do next is turn it over to Emma Humphreys from iCivics, one of our, our fantastic partners for these conversations, who's going to share a little bit more about the, the resources and opportunities to be able to engage with them and the tools that they have to help you bring this back to your classroom. Uh, without further ado, Emma, let me turn it over to you. Thank you so much. And I'm gonna do a little screen share. All right. Um, and I wanna start uh, by acknowledging a, sort of a weird pivot that's gonna happen here. I wanna acknowledge the, the seriousness of the topic we've been covering, the complexity of it. Uh, before I dive into resources that might feel a little bit lighter and, and more superficial. And, I, and I, I almost feel as if they could come across as uh, as quaint or flippant if, if, I, if I weren't to uh, make this qualification. So we're gonna pivot here now to really focusing on the rights found in, uh, in the constitution, mostly the Bill of Rights, but not exclusively, um, to, to talk about how we can provide students with that background knowledge that they need that's foundational to that more in-depth, comprehensive, rigorous understanding of complex uh, social issues. So I don't wanna be like, all right, let's just you know bizarrely change gears here and let me show you this cute little trailer uh, but that's precisely what I'm going to do. Um, this is a, a resource that's intended for uh, middle school through high school audience, although we hear wonderful stories about elementary school students using it. Uh, and we hear really incredible stories about uh, first year law st school students using it. So it, it's uh, one of our most popular resources. It's a really fun game, but it, it does what it does really well. And that is a, uh, a very light treatment of of the rights found in, in the constitution. What we feel really great about and what we know is that through this gameplay, you, you, your students will feel very confident in knowing not just the, the rights that are enumerated in, in the Bill of Rights, but also how they're applied to, to real world issues. So with all of that said, I'm gonna briefly show the trailer and then we'll dive right into these resources. This is our new law firm. Clients come to us so we can protect their rights, as found in the amendments to the U.S. Constitution. Do I have a right to assemble and call for Do change? Do I have a constitutional right to fly Air Force One? Do I have a right that the police violated? Do I have a right to criticize the government? Right. 
right, so there are so many reasons I love this game. I'm not even sure where to start, but let me start by taking a step back and introducing myself and what I do. Again, my name is Emma Humphreys. I'm the Chief Education Officer at iCivics. I first fell in love with iCivics in 2011 when I was working on my PhD in curriculum and instruction, and I was so disappointed that I was no longer in the classroom teaching kids about civics and being able to use games like Do I Have a Right? Because my favorite thing to teach my students was their rights, particularly those found in the Bill of Rights. In fact, every Friday with my seniors, with my regular government class, we would sort of pause the curriculum and do a little get to know your rights Friday. And they loved it. And you know, you guys know how it is with seniors and attendance and first period, which is when I taught it. And I found that these kids wanted to come to school on Fridays because they didn't want to miss my first period class when we talked about their rights. They particularly loved when I talked about due process rights. And when I was a teacher, I didn't have the benefit of, of iCivics. It had not yet been founded by retired Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, so I actually used Bill of Rights Institute materials, which are phenomenal, and they still are to this day. Uh, but once I saw these, I thought, okay, I, gotta, I would definitely want to integrate these as well. So I love teaching about the right, the, the Bill of Rights. I find that students are particularly interested when you focus on, on due process. So that's why I'm excited to talk about do I have a right our most popular game. It's not our most popular game during an election year, that would be win the White House, uh, but election years aside and election seasons aside, it, it's do I have a right? It's just fun, it's sort of diner dash, and I'm gonna actually show that in a little bit. I've actually queued up to a point in the game so we can have a little fun playing. But let's start by navigating to it and seeing what it's intended to teach. Um, for those of you unacquainted with iCivics, make sure you get that free teacher account. Uh, you don't need an account to jump on and just hit play, but as a teacher, if you want to assign the game, if you want to download all the free resources, you need that free teacher account. So there's no paywall on iCivics, but there are things that you can't access unless you're logged in with that free teacher account. So here I am on our homepage, iCivics.org, and I am logged in already. So I'm going to go ahead and click on teach because that's what I like to do. And once I get here, I'm going to see essentially the entire curricular library of iCivics. And you'll see that a lot of things are just sort of organized here by topical area, sort of buckets. This isn't like a textbook, so it's not like it's in a, in a clear sequence, but just sort of topical buckets where you can find all of our resources. So I could get to do I have a right by clicking on the constitution and scrolling down, but it's a lot easier just to go to this first tile right here, which is where you'll find all of our games. So I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna do that, click on all games. Just so everyone knows, we do have high school lesson plans and middle school lesson plans, but the games we do not differentiate. Anyone can play the games. Some are perhaps more tailored to a more mature audience than others, but the games really work in a variety of grade bands. So I'm gonna scroll down here. I could search, there's other ways to get to it, but I'm just sort of showing you how we do it. So here is, do I have a right? I'm gonna go ahead and click on view. So it actually brings me to the resource page where everything for this game is located. Um, you'll see we have sort of a brief introduction to the game. We have learning objectives here. It gives you just sort of all that information you need. It gives you the option to assign the games to your students and you can sync with Google Classroom or with Clever and roster in and then assign this game to your students. And then you have this option to download all of our teacher resources. So I would click on this and you can see that we have a game guide 
We have amendment guides, uh, we have an extension pack, and then PowerPoint slides. And I'll briefly show all of these things to us, uh, to everyone, if, if we have time. But what I want to do now is actually go to the game. And this isn't something I usually do, but because this game is, is so much fun, I thought, let me queue it up to like deeper into the game. Um, so you can see just how fun this game can be. So this morning during the staff call, when I should have been paying attention, I was playing Do I Have a Right? So I could get it queued up to this point. So let me go ahead and click on this. Here I am. I've turned the sound off because it can be distracting. So pro tip, if you're in the classroom and you have students playing individually, you're probably going to want headsets. If you don't have those, if you have them playing in pairs or small groups, you can just have them turn the audio off. So let me go ahead and uh, I'm between sort of uh, days here. You, you get 10 rounds and each round is sort of a day. And so I'm sort of begin here. And since I just had a really successful round, my lawyers have learned some new skills. So I, I have a little roster here, a little inventory of who my lawyers are and what they know. And this is important because when a client, a potential client comes into my law firm, they're gonna tell me what's wrong. And the first thing I have to determine is, do they actually have a right? And if they do, I need to be able to tell them if I can help them out. And I can only do that if I have a lawyer who specializes in the amendment in that given right. And so you have to know who your lawyers are and you have to acquire more lawyers as the game goes on. So I'm gonna hit continue here. And good news, I had a great day. Again, this is between rounds. I actually have an opportunity now to do a little upgrading. So what I usually do, you want to maybe, you know, spend some money on ads, maybe uh, spend some money on office equipment. That way your folks are likely to stick around longer. So let's see, I'm going to put in a little coffee table here with magazines. That way, if someone has to wait, they might be willing to wait longer and they're not going to get frustrated. So I'm going to buy that upgrade and I'm going to, I'm going to go back and buy some lawyers. So this is a really sort of essential is having lawyers. And I've got, if you see down there, I've got 1100 prestige points, so I can buy a few. Uh, so I'm sorry, higher. I don't I'm not buying lawyers. Gosh, sounds terrible. All right, so I've got some due process rights covered here. Uh, let's see. Let me let me get Nate in here. I'm going to hire Nate. I'm going to assign him to this seat. Oh, and I can't hire any more lawyers unless I purchase more office seats. But I want to show you guys how this game works. So I'm not going to keep doing that. But just so you know, your kids love this part of the game. So I'm done upgrading. I'm ready to start my new day and to start greeting some clients. So here they come. All right, when you're reading, the, the, the clock stops because we don't want students to feel stressed out when they're reading. And by the way, there's English language voice over here. So if you have struggling readers or kids who are newer to the content, they can have that read aloud to them by clicking on this button. All right, Congress banned political rallies because people get too loud and messy when they join with people who share their beliefs. Do I have a right to get together with others who think like I do? Now, we all know that this person has a right, but you know we're social studies teachers, this is our jam. If we weren't sure about it, we could click on this little stuck on a case and use the Legal Eagle case analyzer to help us out. So I'm gonna click on that and just gonna sort of break it down and focus the student onto the essential questions. Now, when your kids get good at this, they're not gonna bother with this, they're gonna breeze through it. But if it's the first time they're playing the game, if they're playing the game in, in their second language, hey, they might use this case analyzer to help them out. So what does the client want? To gather with like-minded people. What is in the way? A law banning rallies. We're gonna analyze that case. It's gonna sort of simplify this for us. Um, 
and give us one of three things. And we're gonna click on freedom of assembly, continue. And now we're gonna say, you know what? I think this person does have a right. So we're gonna say, you have a right. Now, can I help? That's what really matters. Now, I know that I have a uh, First Amendment lawyer, so I'm gonna say I can help with that. And I'm gonna introduce this client to this lawyer. I'm gonna choose the actual right. Oh, wait, I don't have it. Uh-oh, no match. Uh, you have a right and I'm gonna need you to come back tomorrow as I gotta get that lawyer. All right, let me go see if I can help this person out. I'm planning to sell my house for $100,000. Now the state wants to tear it down and build a road. Do I have a right to make them pay me 200,000? What do you guys think? Thumbs up, thumbs down. I'll say you don't have a right and I'll know. Good catch, that client had no right. If I gotten that wrong, I would have seen my prestige points go down and uh, I would have known I gotten that, gotten that one wrong. Let me help this person out. The mayor made me stand on a timeout mat in front of city hall all summer because I got caught skipping school. Do I have a right to not stand on that mat? Yeah, I think they have a right, uh, but I don't think I can help with that. I think I need to acquire a lawyer who uh, specializes in no cruel and unusual punishment. All right, so this keeps going on. You'll see uh, if you don't get to your people in time, they get upset, they leave. Although if you have like your cat and your, your coffee table, they might stick around a little bit longer. Uh, but this keeps going. You send people off to trial. Let's see, my state legislature passed a bill. Uh, yep, you have a right to meet with people. Uh, I know you'll have to come back tomorrow. So now I know I've made a mistake and I, and actually maybe this person does have that right. Or this, uh, oh, I did have a freedom of assembly lawyer. This is what happens when you play the game at 10 a.m. and then you come back to it. So the point of the game is to determine if your clients have a right and if they do to match them with a lawyer and send them off to trial. Uh, your students are way better at this than I am. Um, and if you tell them what your high score is, I assure you they're going to keep playing until they beat it. And I do recommend keeping a leaderboard. So with that, I'm going to come back to here and just show you a couple more things. Um, I should mention, actually, let me go back to the game briefly. So this is the music that I turned off. This is important. You can very easily at any point in the game toggle between the English language version and the Spanish version. Um, and you have these different settings, audio on, audio off, and you can have your sound effects, your music, your voiceover, you can have your glossary links on or off. We purposely made it so that students can select these, um, although you're welcome to guide them in which options they choose. Uh, and I have to briefly, I know I'm running out of time, I have to briefly tell a quick story that is just so special to me. The first time I ever uh, saw this game in action in a classroom, uh, was down in Miami. It was the day after the San Francisco NCSS and I took a red eye. You guys can watch this go on while I'm talking, by the way, you can see these people get mad and leave. Anyways, I took a red eye from San Francisco to Miami because Justice Sonia Sotomayor was going to be visiting a middle school in Miami uh, to talk about iCivics and to talk to these kids about their rights and then to watch them play this game with their classroom. So you see this person just got sick of waiting. Okay. So we're in a classroom, it's a 100% English language learning classroom. There's students there, everything from uh, level one English language learners to level five. There was a kid who got there uh, five days prior. Uh, his family 
uh, emigrated to the United States five days prior. He didn't speak any English, except a few words. Um, and so the teacher paired him with a, a sort of higher level English language learner to play the game together. And to watch a student who's been in this country for five days and doesn't know the language play a game about the US Constitution and laugh and high five his classmate uh, because the game is in his native language and he understands what's happening. Um, and then to watch the Supreme Court Justice walk over to him and put her hand on his shoulder and ask him questions about what he was learning was a pretty powerful moment. And needless to say, I'm pretty committed to uh, creating as many more of these resources and making them as accessible as possible. Uh, so it's a really great, great game. It's a lot of fun. One other thing I just want to show you about this game. We have an extension pack so you can teach all around the game. Uh, you can use the PowerPoint to sort of go from the beginning, pre-game stuff, play the game, post-game activities, assessments. The students can have worksheets in front of them that you can print out in this extension pack. Everything you need for a full learning sequence built around this game. Something really cool that some people don't know about that can be a helpful tool for any student is that we have these amendment guides. So we pulled the art from the game to create these amendment guides. So it looks just like what they see in the game with the, the numbers, the images, and uh, the explanations. And my favorite part about this, and this is really important if you teach in a school with uh, native sp uh, Spanish speaking, uh, ELLs is that the Spanish version of it looks exactly the same. And unless you focused in, you wouldn't realize that you were looking at a, a different resource. Um, the obvious question that we always get is, uh, I have students who speak other native languages and, and we know um, uh, translation to do it well is really, really expensive and cost prohibitive. Uh, we're constantly raising money and, and hoping to do that, hoping to first translate all of our games into Spanish and all of our resources and ultimately tackle other languages, but as a, as a small nonprofit, we can only do the things that we raise the money to do. So we hear you. And for those reasons, we built in all sorts of other tools to these games so that they're really helpful for all English learners, for struggling readers, for a student who's never learned about this before. There's features embedded all throughout the game and the resources to help them, even if Spanish isn't their, uh, their, their native uh, first language. So that's really all I have to say. I just hope if nothing else, uh, you, you, Play, uh, do I have a right? You assign the game. And if you have the time in your sequence to teach around this game, to use our extension pack or other resources, uh, it's really a far more meaningful experience. And I promise you, your students will thank you and they will probably go home that night, even if you don't ask them to and keep playing it to get a higher score. So uh, with that, I will yield my time, I believe to Rachel at the Bill of Rights Institute. Thanks, Emma, so much. I love those resources and those games are particularly powerful. Uh, our next speaker, our last presenter, is Rachel Davison Humphreys from the Bill of Rights Institute, a frequent contributor to our events here at Sphere and no stranger to all of you. Rachel, please take it away. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. Um, as I say every time I come on, I love the Sphere events and I also love my co-presenters in the civic space, Carrie and Emma and I are all, all get to go to a lot of the same events now many of them virtually, usually in past years they're in person. Um, NCSS, the National uh, Council for Social Studies was this past weekend and my heart just hurt because it's such a fun time to get all the people who, who are so passionate about the work we're doing in one place and you know go to the 
hotel bar and talk about nerdy civics things. Uh, <laughs> and I missed that. So it's so good to have this uh, wonderful event in, uh, in, in, instead, in the stead of that. Um, so thank you all. And I want to echo what Emma said. I mean, I think what, what we saw this past year um, as an extension of, of America's civil rights movement, there's, there's a lot of emotion and tension around these ideas. And I think what Curry was mentioning when, it, when, when, you're, when you're trying to have these conversations with students, it's really important that you talk about culture and that you build the culture before you jump into these kind the, the conversations that touch students so personally. Um, so I wanted to echo Emma and Curry in that uh, before jumping into our resources. So the Bill of Rights Institute, for those of you that don't know, and I know many of you do, one of our teacher members, uh, teacher council members is here. Hi, Jen, um, is in the comments section. Uh, we are a national nonprofit that supports history and civics teachers. The difference, uh, the primary difference between us and iCivics is we focus very much on the high school space. Um, and whereas uh, iCivics has amazing games, we are not gamers as much. We are much more primary source, lesson-based activity uh, driven. So I'm gonna share my screen, but the preface I have to say is starting tomorrow at 12.01 midnight, uh, BRI will be rolling out a new website. So over the course of the next week, <laughs> Our website, um, in advance of Bill of Rights Day, which is December 15th, we are launching a brand new website, which takes all of our resources. We have over 4,000 different educational resources across four different platforms, consolidating all of them to make them entirely searchable for you, the educator. Um, and so it is very, very exciting. But that also means the navigation I'm about to show you will not exist a week from now. So my apologies in advance, but the website goes live tomorrow. So this is what we got. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna share my screen and I'm gonna optimize for sound so that I remember to do that and hope this works. Um, oh, actually, there we go. Um, so, the first thing I wanted to share with you is our website. This is what our new website will look like. Um, and all of our resources will be up here at the resources tab under our resources library. But for now, I'm gonna take you to our older website and the resource we have called Preserving the Bill of Rights. Preserving the Bill of Rights looks at constitutional principles through primary sources. Again, it's aimed at kind of, you know, the eighth to 10th grade advanced eighth grader reading level. One thing I do want to mention, um, building on what, uh, what Emma has mentioned, is we are currently, we are funded to create a ELL, um, English language learner version of preserving the Bill of Rights. So it won't focus on Spanish specifically, but it will focus on specific English language learner scaffolding so that it's more universally able to be used um, beyond Spanish speakers. So whatever the, whatever the incoming languages, we're working with those, um, those learning specialists to be able to design it with, that, with those learners in mind. So you can look for that coming out next, um, next semester at the, towards the end of the semester, which is very, very exciting because this is one of our most popular resources. So preserving the Bill of Rights about teaching the constitutional principles is broken down into a number of different uh, sections. So again, when you're thinking about how do you introduce this, not only is the culture of the classroom very important, but really getting the foundations of where these rights come from and what preserves them is incredibly important for students to explore and really understand. So the, um, the resource goes through a number of them, but the one I wanted to focus on 
is the Bill of Rights and Due Process because that touches on where does this idea, so I, I actually taught in Guatemala City for a number of years. Um, Guatemala City does not have, Guatemala does not have the same due process that America does. Where does the idea, where do these ideas of due process come from? Interesting fact, as a single female driver, you do not, you are legally not required to get out of the car if stopped by police. So totally different sense of things. Um, the Bill of Rights and Due Process lessons look at what is, what are the process, what are the due process protections for the accused, for the accused, and how do they protect us all? And then who should be protecting our fundamental freedoms? So both of those lessons um, are in PDF form. They start with a background essay and then move on to um, question, analytic questions, um, graphical organizers looking at the different amendments and asking students to interpret them, uh, defining cruel and unusual, um, and, then, uh, and then looking at different scenarios that students can look at. So scenarios around due process. Um, this one in particular is about a 14 year old and always touches the students kind of closely. The other thing um, that I wanted to share is this other one is who should define and protect our freedoms. So this activity and set of this set of essays and lessons helps students through that. All of our resources always come with a um, with a uh, study uh, um, an answer key for teachers. So BRI's resources are designed for educators to use in their classroom um, and uh, and and have answer keys included. So that lesson is the one that really focuses most closely on due process. The other thing that I wanted to share with you all is our Supreme Court DBQ uh, resources. So BRI has about 50 Supreme Court cases identified that are most common within the classroom. And then it takes you through, through the document-based question uh, method or modality. So it has the resource. So I'm gonna show you all of those. So these are Supreme Court document-based questions and you can see they're broken down into different groups. You have uh, rights of the accused, but equal protection and affirmative action, students in the constitution. These are always really interesting um, if, if you're students. So um, I think Mr. Neely maybe, or, or um, Mr. Thomas Thompson mentioned the idea that, that student rights in, in government schools is actually a, a really interesting place to start with where are the origin of rights. It's very personal to the students. Is my locker personal property? Um, you have Tinker v. Des Moines, where they say that the rights are not left at the schoolhouse door. There's a lot of conversation about rights and about policing and about the nature of our relationship with government that can happen through these Supreme Court cases that touch students so personally. So Tinker v. Des Moines, Hazelwood, Kuhlmeyer, and Potawatomi versus Earls are all ones that I would, I would look at. And then um, uh, the, the one I wanted wanted us to go through under the rights of the accused is actually Miranda v. Arizona from 1966. So when you click on Miranda v. Arizona, you get a case background and primary sources. So the case background, Ernesto Miranda, we've all heard of your Miranda rights. Where does that actually come from? What was the case? And then BRI actually produces a number of different Supreme Court homework help videos. So these are videos that are less than six, less than eight minutes long that go through um, a, a case in a way that is very accessible to a student. But then we have 
many of the many of the Supreme Court DBQs have videos, not all of them. We're working to fundraise. They're pretty high, um, um, high production quality. So we'll watch one in a little bit. But it has the key question. Um, and this key question is, evaluate the extent to which the ruling in Miranda is the fulfillment of the legal, legal tradition of the promise against self-incrimination. Self and then it has all of these activities. So in document-based questions, what, what a good DBQ will do, will take the documents of the case, excerpt it for the students and create resources that scaffold those excerpts so that students can approach the actual words that were used to argue the case or the documents that were used to argue the case. So here you can see that going all the way back to 1641 with the Massachusetts Body of Liberties, all the way up to Miranda warning cards, and they use my confession against me from 2005. So all of those different documents are there for students and the, um, the graphical organizers that help, uh, that help you organize it for the students. So we have a background essay. Then, then the case background, then the documents. And again, the document may be just a paragraph. So it's really accessible to it. So this is, this is one, one, two sentences from the Virginia debate on the ratification of the constitution in 1788. And you go, well, what does that have to do with the Miranda case in 1966? Well, in America, legal traditions go back that far, right? So we, we look at these documents and we help the students understand that all the decisions that are made in the courts come from somewhere. And the other thing to know is that they are sometimes overturned, right? So it's not once a court decides, that doesn't mean it exists in perpetuity. That um, you can have different decisions even within a couple of years of each other that will overturn one another. So then you have the majority opinion and you have the, the dissenting opinion um, and you have a number of other kinds of organizers like political cartoons. Uh, so, I wanted to share that document, those documents with you as well. The other thing that you should know about is BRI um, focuses on how do we connect what is happening right now with the, the constitutional history of the United States. So we produce current events e-lessons every other week that are touching on something that is happening right now. Um, for instance, or, and we also catalog um, news articles that are that are classroom ready that touch on constitutional issues. So how do we, um, so for instance, back in November, we were talking about uh, US, US deportations, we were talking about Guantanamo, but then we also have all these e-lessons like the, uh, the Fourth Amendment and tire chalking or um, should the death penalty be abolished or Gideon v. Wainwright. The one I would like <coughs> for us to look at is the e-lesson around Miranda versus Arizona. Um, so Miranda v. Arizona, these are some discussion questions that come with an answer key. And then you can also watch the video. So the Bill of Rights Institute um, has a very active YouTube channel. We have over six, almost 16,000 subscribers now. That's nowhere near what NCS, NCC has because they have so many amazing speakers, but we're getting, they're our goal. That's, a, that's, what, that's what makes our space so fun is um, internally we call each other competimates. We have like this really healthy kind of competition around how good can we each get to provide the best resources for teachers because <laughs> we're nerds. Um, but so, so our, our, our YouTube channel uh, is very active, but on our YouTube channel, you'll see a whole playlist 
of the Supreme Court cases that we have. So I'm going to pull up the Miranda case and we'll watch just a few minutes ago because, um, Alan, I'm looking at my time and I have about three to five minutes left. Is that about right? Okay, so I don't want to go over. Um, the so first half of the 20th century car, but I want us to go down to Miranda v. Arizona. You've probably noticed how many times TV police officers say, you have the right to remain silent. This is called a Miranda warning. But have you ever wondered why that happens all the time? The 1966 Supreme Court case of Miranda v. Arizona helped shed light on this phenomenon. In 1963, Ernesto Miranda was accused of the horrific crimes of kidnapping and rape. He was detained by police and chose not to have a lawyer present while being interrogated for two hours, where he ultimately confessed to committing both crimes. Local courts found him guilty and sentenced him to two 20 to 30 year jail terms. Following the decision, Miranda appealed his conviction, stating that he had not been advised of his right to remain silent and therefore his confession should not be used as evidence. So why did Ernesto feel that he had been wrongly tried? Well, the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution declares that no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself or be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And the Sixth Amendment reads, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Lastly, in 1963, the Supreme Court had ruled in Gideon v. Wainwright that the state must provide a lawyer to any defendant who couldn't otherwise afford one. Although Ernesto Miranda provided a written confession acknowledging he understood the statements made during the interrogation could be used against him, the question remained, could it be used to incriminate him as he was not informed of his rights prior to making that statement? The Supreme Court took up the case in 1966 and Miranda's conviction was overturned by a narrow five to four majority. The court found the interrogation environment had been designed to be and was intimidating to Miranda, placing him under the will of the police. Ultimately, the court ruled there can be no doubt that the Fifth Amendment privilege is available outside the criminal court proceedings, and thus, the Miranda warning was born. It includes phrases such as, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say may be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to consult an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you before any questioning if you wish. It is important to note that there was dissent amongst the justices. Some argued that the majority opinion created too strict of an interpretation of the Fifth Amendment, as the Fifth Amendment does not necessarily prohibit all pressure placed on suspects. While other so I don't want to spend too much of our time there, but it only goes on for another minute. Um, so these, so BRI has about 20 of these videos specifically about the um, Supreme Court cases. The first half of the 20th. Um, but what? we also produce a number of other different kinds of videos that we've started to put into playlists for you. So if you're looking for videos on the executive branch or the judicial branch or the legislative branch, or if you're looking for scholars talking about particular constitutional issues, this one is really fun. This is a series that we've been doing on primary source close reading. So is there a particular document that you, you or your students struggle with reading and we'll spend about 20 minutes just reading through that document or talking about how to read, that, read through that document? Um, so the last thing I wanted to share in my last minute is our Think the Vote resource. So when talking about constitutional principles, again, how do we create a culture of open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, respect for, um, for, for the other? 
One of the resources BRI has is called Think the Vote. And in Think the Vote, it is a text-based debate where you stake a claim and then defend your claim. And you actually qualify for an Amazon gift card if, if, you're, if yours is chosen as the winning. Um, but it's really, it really asks students. So for instance, the one from December 1st, or the one from December 13th had to do with faithless electors. I'm gonna turn that one because next week is the electoral college vote. Um, so when you click on should, the, should states outlaw faithless electors, these change every two weeks. My computer is not loading that particularly quickly. Um, what it'll do is it'll pop up with a number of resources and it will ask if you want to say yes or no and then give a defense of your, your reasoning. Um, but then you can also, it gives you a little bit of background information. Here it asks you to click yes or no. Um, but then you can also reply to other students from around the country who have, who have um, uh, engaged in this debate. So here you'll see Vincent from North Carolina or Daniel from Oklahoma or Stephen from Maryland or Lola or Caitlin. Any of these students, you can engage with them. Um, you can see the current standings. Uh, you can defend, you can upvote, you can downvote all based on, on the, uh, the debate question for that week. Um, they change every two weeks. <coughs> so. On that note, again, I'd like to thank Alan and Cato and the Sphere Summit and Curry and Emma. It was so good to see you all and Jen and everybody in the chat. If you have any questions, I'm going to spend a few moments putting all of these links in the chat for everyone. Um, but thank you so much and we will see you all soon. Thanks so much both to Emma and to Rachel. Fantastic as usual. Thank you again for sharing all of those resources. And like usual, if you don't get a chance to, to snag all of those in the chat function, we'll send them all out by email after the event itself so you can have access to any of those resources as well. What we want to do now is return to the Q&A conversation for a bit. Uh, so I'll have uh, Chief Thompson, uh, Clark Neely, and Curry Sautner join me back here. We had many great questions in the chat and from the beginning of the event that I wanted to circle back to. A, a handful of individuals asked questions, and I think this is a, a great place for us to begin, given that conversation we just had, around qualified immunity. I know, Clark, you'd started to share initially what the doctrine is itself, but I wonder if you might expand on that a little bit. What is qualified immunity, and what are some of the challenges around it and some of the current, uh, let's say, constitutional issues as it's being considered in the court system? Well, I'm so pleased that uh, we get a chance to talk about this. I think the, the issue of qualified immunity really is driving a lot of the frustration that, that I alluded to earlier in our conversation. Um, in a nutshell, the issue is this. Um, in the wake of the Civil War in 1871, Congress enacted a federal civil rights law that gives people the ability to sue any state actor. That means any government official who's employed by a state or local government, including police officers, the ability to sue and recover damages for the deprivation of any right. And what happened was that about uh, 110 years later, the Supreme Court took it upon itself to vastly narrow the scope of that civil rights remedy by effectively judicially amending the statute that we today refer to as Section 1983, because that's where it appears in the US Code, 42 USC Section 1983. So Congress passes a law that gives people the ability to sue government officials for the deprivation of 
any right. And what the Supreme Court does is vastly narrow that so that now you can only sue government officials for the deprivation of any clearly established right. And that's qualified immunity. It narrows the scope of police and other government official liability. Let me give you one example. We talked a little bit earlier about the issue of um, uh, women having to get out of a car, for example, during a traffic stop. There was a case two years ago in Arkansas where a woman was driving down the highway with her daughter at night. She was, uh, a police officer pulled up behind her, a state trooper pulled up behind her and put on his lights. She wasn't comfortable stopping. So she slowed down to about 35 miles an hour on a highway where the speed limit was 55 miles an hour and wanted to drive until she found a place where she felt safe. The officer, after following for just a couple of minutes, decided he would initiate what's called a pit maneuver, precision intervention technique, where he effectively ran her into a concrete bridge abutment, injuring her and her daughter. She then sued. They were both okay in the end, but she sued. Applying qualified immunity, the Court of Appeals held that it doesn't, it's not relevant whether that police officer violated her rights, the driver's rights. All that matters is whether there was a pre-existing case on the books in that jurisdiction. And because the answer was no, the court didn't even bother to answer the question of whether there was a rights violation. It simply granted qualified immunity to that state trooper and denied that woman her day in court so that a jury never even got to hear the facts and decide whether or not that state trooper should or should not be liable for using this very dangerous and unnecessary technique of running her off the road. That, in a nutshell, is qualified immunity, and it repeatedly prevents people who have been plausibly the victim of rights violations at the hands of police and other government officials from even getting their day in court to where a jury could decide, were your rights violated or not? Um, and uh, this uh, justifiably, I think, has generated tremendous frustration and resentment because people realize that we as citizens are being held in some of these cases to a much higher standard than a police officer is being held, including, for example, in that case. And in fact, it should be exactly the other way around. Thanks, Clark. Uh Curry or Chief Thompson, anything that you guys would like to add on the topic of qualified immunity? It's a it's an interesting one. I think uh, for some of our participants, something they've they've had some familiarity with, but for others, it may be relatively new. Be curious to hear any additional thoughts that either of you had about the topic. I'll let Thompson go first on this one. <laughs> well, the, I I certainly I, I'm not a lawyer. I I could not explain it uh, as eloquently as as Clark just did. Uh, but what I think that in the experiences that I've had and from the frustrations that I have heard uh, is, is particularly when uh, government acts in a way where it creates the jeopardy itself. Uh, and I think that that has led to a lot of civil unrest that we have seen across the country. Um, and, and what I mean by that is when, uh, when police officers would do things that... Um, they necessarily didn't need to do, uh, but their actions made it more dangerous or limited their own options, whereupon they, they basically would then use deadly force uh, and then somebody would lose their life. And then the officer would say, well, I had this, I guess the best way I could give you is the example, right? Is, is an example of, um, there was a case called Tamir Rice out of, uh, out of Cleveland in which somebody had called in the dispatch center and said, 
there, there, there's a young African-American male waving a gun in this, in this uh, community area, in this, in this park. Well, we, there's, this whole thing was captured on video and there was no one else around. He was standing by himself and the police officer pulled directly up to this young man, Tamir, and got out and he ran right up to him. And uh, he sees the gun and he shoots and kills the young man. And his, the officer's explanation was, well, I was within, you know, two or three feet. I saw a gun. I feared for my life. I didn't know. I used deadly force. But in all of police officers' training and tactics, you don't do things like that. There was no reason. There was no need to pull directly up on the individual. Now, it turned out it was a fake gun. It was a young man who had a fake gun. Uh, but if the situation had been approached in a way that, that was more, more reasonable, one that was more uh, consistent with training and tactics. And there's not, not a sound police officer out there that would say, that's what you should do in that type of a situation. And uh, yet somebody, somebody lost their life in the matter and there didn't seem to be any recourse. And that's where look, nothing creates groundswell like the sense of injustice. And when people, when people just can't understand it and the only thing that you can cite is some, you know, Bible thick like book of, well, we can't because this said so, you know, you start to see the things that you're, that we saw this, this past summer across the country. And we'll continue to see so long as things don't change. I, I mean, just to add to that, with these dialogues with our students and these discussions with our students, it's one, looking at the case law, which Clark went through. It's then two, looking at what is the emotional tenor of this? That's, that's not fair. Like any single third grader can tell you that. That's not fair. That's not right. And then to add to it that so many of these policies are written down and can be used as blankets of protection and aren't transparent to the people. And we really need to help kids understand these pieces and then enable them with the, the system that we do have to change it. So what are you going to do about it? And yes, people are finding that protest is a part of what they're gonna do about it, but there's other ways to change these laws and change these policies and look closely in their local community about what police are doing, but also nationally about what these issues are and then understand how to empower yourselves with the constitution and find the power for you in that to change some of these pieces. But it all does start with a conversation on that's not fair. And what is fairness in our, in our constitution and where do we need to push for that more perfect union? Uh, one additional question that we got from, uh, where was it? Oh, it was from Jimmy Camp. I think this is a, a fantastic one. It builds off some of uh, what you've already been saying, Chief Thompson, and that's there was a lot of curiosity around when the Camden Police Department was changing some of its approach toward the tactics it's using and it was engaging in the community. How in particular did it think about juvenile engagement? So working with uh, the younger members of the community and some of the unique challenges that come with that, what, what were some of the approaches that you took? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, in, in fact, when, when you look at really the challenges of Camden in, in the city of Camden, 30% of the population is under the age of 18. So when you look in really challenged communities, that's actually 20% higher than many other uh, uh, cities uh, that, that have um, similar challenging dynamics. And, and when you start to look at generational poverty and you know, particularly the, the youth, 
we knew that we had to get it right with, with, with that group, with those folks. Um, and yeah, I, I, I had learned from an educator early on that um, there's this really interesting statistic that says up until the third grade, you learn to read. After the third grade, you read to learn. And if reading fundamentals are not established by the third grade, the illiteracy uh, rate is then about 70%. And it's not by happenstance that that's the illiteracy rate in, in, in most of the, 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 the jails and penal institutions across the country. So from a, a, a public safety police perspective, um, I knew that one, we needed to have meaningful inter, inter, uh, interactions with, uh, with our youth, but we needed to start to invest very early on so that we could build those relationships. We did a program called Bookmates where we actually partnered with the school. So one of the greatest uh, allies in helping us shift uh, um, uh, our, our culture and our relationships was our relationship with the schools. I had a really dynamic superintendent of the schools. He got it. Uh, and we worked very closely together. We started to have police officers going in and, and, and reading to kids in the second and third grade. Not only did it help build, uh, you know, corn seed or seed corn uh, relationships for the future, but also a lot of family members, uh, parents that, that may have had high levels of skepticism with us, saw us investing in something that was common, that, that there was, there was uh, you know, a, a mutual uh, feeling with regards to everybody loves their child. When they saw the police investing in their child, they started to look at us a little differently. But when we started to, to develop those relationships with the juveniles uh, in the schools, and that also meant with us now, not looking to lock them up and institutionalize them right away. That meant for us that when we started to have um, intersections upon, based upon some type of transgression, we would rely more upon states and house adjustments than putting them in front of a judge. And the relationships with the schools is really where this all came from. The relationships with the schools also gave us the ability to be far more informed when tensions were rising amongst uh, sometimes gangs uh, or, uh, or elements of, you know, within, within the, the, you know, the, the teenager community. Um, and, it, and we were now informed with it and we could get in, involved and be able to have meaningful uh, uh, engagements in that would lead to outcomes that did not result in violence and, and people's lives being changed forever. So uh, yeah, a focus on, on the youth and, uh, and the investments that we got from that and doing things like with, with, with the program that we did with the, uh, the Constitution Center uh, gave us the peace dividend on those investments were, were exponential. Clark, we, we've talked about a lot of different elements when it comes to policing and reform. What haven't we gotten to yet? So in thinking about some of the, the elements that are most important to this conversation, what are, what are some of those pieces in this broader policy landscape that perhaps we haven't yet had a chance to discuss tonight? Well, I think, I think this is gonna sound a bit old fashioned, um, but a lot of this boils down to whether you have um, a morally defensible system that can credibly claim the support and confidence uh, of those who are policed. Um, you know, we libertarians tend to care an awful lot uh, about a very simple point, which is when is it okay to use force against another person? And that's one of the things that makes policing so fraught because 
Police almost uniquely in our society are equipped both with the means and the authority to use force against other people. And it matters tremendously that they get that right because if they don't, um, that's gonna generate the kind of frustration and resentment that we've been talking about. And I think that, um, the, the, again, to sort of maybe finish where we started or at least where I started, two things are true. Um, first, the, it is absolutely the case that the legislature and the courts are partly responsible for the situation we find ourselves in. Um, just to take, for example, that, that Shreveport, Louisiana ordinance that purported to authorize police and in fact require police to use force against people simply for wearing saggy pants. Um, there are some of us who think there are plenty of other laws in this country uh, that authorize the use of force against people in a way that is not morally defensible. Um, but police are not entirely passive in all of this. Uh, the law enforcement lobby is a very strong one. Police Prosecutors and prison officials are extremely effective uh, at implementing and influencing policy. And many of the laws that they are um, uh, you know, required to go out on the streets and enforce are in fact ones that they have pushed themselves. Uh, there's been tremendous resistance in many um, quarters to uh, eliminating, for example, something as simple as low level marijuana possession, laws against that. Um, these are some of the ways in which police and citizens come into unnecessary conflict. And I think we would all be better off if police in this country focused more of their effort on pursuing genuine criminals and getting people off the street who actually make people's lives worse. Um, now, Chief Thompson was extraordinarily focused and, and, and effective in doing that in Camden. And what I think would make this country a much better place is if all big city police chiefs were as conscientious about making sure that their officers were out on the street making people's lives better and not simply racking up arrests or generating citations. That is the path forward. Thank you, Clark. I want to give the, the last question of the night to Curry. Curry, final words that you would have for our educators. So, so thinking about bringing this back to the classroom and thinking about sharing these lessons with their students, how can they do so in a way that's going to help them be most effective? So I'll have our team put it the, the brief. We made a briefing document for you guys with all the tools you can do this. And so this is really stressful. This is really scary, but it's actually amazing and it's not hard. So I know that you're like, oh, I can't, you know, I don't have a giant museum and a law guy and a chief in my back pocket. So how am I going to be able to do this? You don't need all these tools. It really is something that your kids are so incredibly interested in. It's something that the police are so interested in and bringing them together in place and space is not that difficult. We built an entire toolkit on it. And this summer, we're gonna run a week-long teacher institute on civil discourse and dialogue. And we're gonna dive into almost like the procedurally, how do you do this? What are the ways you set this up in the classroom? And then how do you work with partners to be able to have these dialogues? for the police, but for other members of the community too. Because our kids need to be empowered to really understand and have these dialogues for themselves in all different situations. At the end of the day, we want our kids to be advocates for themselves. And that means putting them in these situations where they can do that to change the constitution, but change their medical plan as well and be able to really move forward. So taking the constitution, taking these big constitutional questions that matter to them and embracing the dialogue. We have lots of tools, you're not alone, and we have lots of partners we work with so we can get you your own lawyer and a really cool, awesome chief of police that can help you out too. So reach out to us and let us know. 
Clark Curry, Chief Thompson, thank you all so much for the conversation tonight and for sharing the tremendous uh, thoughts and experiences that you have on this topic and how it might be able to be beneficial for educators. Uh, this is our last sphere event for 2020. So I wanna take this as an opportunity to thank all of you educators for joining us tonight. I do hope that your semester winds down soon and that you're able to have uh, a fantastic and restful holiday break before coming back in the new year. Uh, thank you all again so much. We'll be sending out certificates for all of those participating tonight over the course of the next week or so. And we'll be passing along those resources in the next day or two to you from all of our wonderful presenters tonight. Again, thank you all so much and enjoy the rest of your evening.